0: Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. How do you understand mindfulness? And is your understanding limited by your own culture's definition of what mindfulness is? These are some of the questions you will ask yourself while reading Remembering the Present – Mindfulness in Buddhist Asia. In today's podcast, Professor Julia Casaniti takes us on a tour of three Theravada Buddhist countries, Thailand, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka, to show us how mindfulness is understood in the region and what this, in turn, can teach the West about its own understanding of the concept. This is an insightful read, not only for academics interested in contemporary Buddhist studies in the country surveyed, but also for anyone interested in broadening the perspective on what the term mindfulness means. Julia, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Alex.
0: So I'd like to begin by asking you how you became interested in the field of Buddhist studies in general and how you became interested in mindfulness, the topic of your book.
1: Well, I came about it a kind of roundabout way. I started studying psychology, actually, in college in Massachusetts at Smith College. And I studied a lot of ideas about the mind and the way the mind works. Uh, and after college, I traveled and worked in Southeast Asia And I realized that a lot of the ideas that I had learned about in school, about the mind and about our identity, about our social identities um, in cognitive and social psychology, didn't really seem to fit a lot of what I had been coming across in Southeast Asia. And I got really interested in Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, and it seemed to offer a lot of ways of thinking about the mind that were different than what I had learned about these supposedly universal concepts Uh, in my college courses. And so I decided to study um, cultural anthropology through a program, a PhD program at the University of Chicago on comparative human development. And it's an interdisciplinary program with uh, anthropology, psychology, biology, sociology, and linguistics. And in that program, I worked with uh, Richard Schwader. um, Studying this Buddhist concept of impermanence, I wanted to know how ideas about impermanence, which is one of these three characteristics in Theravada teachings uh, might influence how people live their lives, how their mental health works, how their ideas about themselves and about their society work. I put that together in my first book, um, Living Buddhism, Mind, Self, and Emotion in a Thai Community that came out a few years ago at Cornell University Press. Uh, and while I was at my post-doc, uh, doing postdoctoral work at Stanford University with Tanya Lerman, Um, I got even more and more interested in this idea of the mind and how the mind might be conceptualized in different ways uh, by different people. When I got my job at Washington State University as an assistant professor in anthropology, I started hearing more and more about mindfulness. Mindfulness seemed to be pretty much everywhere. Everywhere I looked, it seemed like people were talking about mindfulness in psychology journals in Buddhist studies journals, even at local grocery stores, I would come across magazines at the checkout counter, you know, mindfulness can help you this way and that way. And I also was hearing a lot about mindfulness in Southeast Asia, in Thailand, especially where I was doing a lot of my uh, field work. And this idea of mindfulness in Thailand seemed to be very similar to how I was hearing about it back home in the Pacific Northwest and also in upstate New York, where I'm from. Uh, But there were also some pretty big differences, or it seemed like there were pretty big differences. And I got more and more interested in studying it uh, by hearing these different kinds of ways of talking about mindfulness in these different places. At one point, I was in Thailand um, talking to uh, one of my very good friends and field informants, who I called Sen in my first book, uh, who was spending some time at the psychiatric hospital um, in Chiang Mai for some of his problems uh, with connected to alcoholism. And I went in to talk to him one day and he told me, you know, Julia, every everyone in here who's in this hospital is in here because they don't have mindfulness. And I was pretty struck. And he used, of course, in Thai, uh, he was speaking in Thai, uh, and he used this Pali term, sati. Uh, and this word sati is translated often as mindfulness in English language journals and books. And I was curious how it was similar and different to how I understood it here, and I was really curious, especially because he said that everybody's problem was about mindfulness or lack of mindfulness. And I knew that there was um, a nurse at the hospital who was um, who was engaging in a six week mindfulness program. And I went and talked to her, and I said, "Could you tell me a little bit about some of these local concepts about mindfulness? Are they, you know, about religion about Uh, culture, about cultural differences. And she said, oh, no, no, mindfulness is mindfulness. It's the same everywhere. And I was really surprised because it seemed like there were quite striking differences just from my initial impression. And I looked at her transcripts that she was using for her program. And I noticed that it was a a direct translation in Thai of a very famous Jon Kabat-Zinn mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And if you're familiar with mindfulness at all, uh, John Kabat Zinn is one of the main proponents of mindfulness in the United States. Um, using this idea of mindfulness as kind of this sense of being aware in the present moment and paying attention in, part- in a particular way without judgment. A lot of these ideas that John Kabat Zinn was promoting were getting now used in these hospitals in Thailand. And I was curious why the nurse had said that mindfulness is the same in every place. And so after the interview, I went and I was leaving the hospital and I asked her, you know, I was really intrigued that you said there weren't any cultural differences, you know, is it how, how do you, how do you, what do you make of that? Because it seems like mindfulness is this really important Buddhist concept in ways that maybe are not really getting highlighted in, in these Western contexts. And she laughed and said, you know, actually a lot of these ideas that I'm promoting in the hospital are from these Western contexts, but I'm not really saying a lot of these more local concepts because a lot of the funding comes from Western contexts. And, you know, it would be kind of people would start arguing about different lineages if I bring in different ideas about mindfulness. And actually, of course, it's all about culture and it's all about religion. And so we sat down and she talked to me for about an hour about all these local ideas about what mindfulness means. And I was really, really intrigued by it, and I thought that I would try to study mindfulness uh, more and more. And so I decided to do this research project, and I think it was right around that time I came across a a graduate student uh, from the United States who was in Chiang Mai, and she was doing mindfulness-based therapy trainings with monks in Chiang Mai, and she said she was teaching them mindfulness, And I said to her, well, wouldn't you want to learn from them instead of teaching them? And she said, oh, no, no. You know, we're trying to do things and make change. It seems like that's something you would do as an anthropologist is to learn from them. And I thought to myself, you know, it is something that I would do. And so after she kind of prompted me, I decided to do a research project on mindfulness and try to uncover some of these ways that people are understanding mindfulness in their own lives, not just from the psychological sciences point of view, which often tries to look at mindfulness as um, something separate from cultural variability of the mind, and not just from a Buddhist studies perspective, which often looks at texts and kind of mm, looks at these authoritative sources rather than how people are actually living. And I decided I wanted to study how people are actually living today. One of the meanings of my book title, Remembering the Present, is to try to get us to think about how mindfulness is being used today in Buddhist majority contexts. So that's kind of how I got to the field of mindfulness studies through this in kind of indirect path through the field of psychology and coming around to cultural anthropology and Buddhist studies to try to look at how cultural variability can inform how we think about the mind.
0: And could you provide our listeners with a, a general overview of what they might expect to find in your book?
1: Yes. So basically, Remembering the Present, it provides a, an engaging kind of person-centered analysis of mindfulness as practiced in these Buddhist countries, mostly in Theravada countries with um, majority religions of Theravada Buddhism, um, because a lot of this mindfulness um comes uh, with the way that the Western concept of mindfulness comes from these Theravada traditions in some senses. Um, So I looked at mindfulness as practice in the countries of these Theravada areas um, with a comparative eye on how these practices look similar to and different from each other and also from how they look similar to and different from each other in the United States and other Western settings. So through over about 600 interviews and surveys with Buddhist monks, psychiatrists, university students, and non-specialist farmers and villagers in Thailand, in Myanmar, and in Sri Lanka, and also with a comparison in the Northwestern United States, I looked at basically how mindfulness works for people in their individual lives. And through that, through this, these personal accounts, the book argues for five key associations that I draw out that mindfulness, I argue, has in different ways, in variable ways, with ideal and actual mental characteristics. These mental associations I call in the book the, quote, tapes of mindfulness, an acronym that looks at how mindfulness can be associated with in different ways with ideas about temporality, with affect, power, ethics, and selfhood. And so in each of these different cases, I look at how people are understanding mindfulness as it fits how we understand different aspects of the mind in these ways. The introduction offers a little bit of an overview of it, and then each of the different chapters looks at how mindfulness plays out in different people's lives. I start with monks. I look then at meditation, Uh, and then I turn to more secular cases um, about uh, personal kinds of powers and even political powers and supernatural powers. And I focus in the first half on Thailand, which is the area that I know best, um, having done research there a long time. And then the next three chapters look in turn uh, to Myanmar and to Sri Lanka. Uh, And then the final chapter looks at the United States and kind of broadens out to how mindfulness plays out uh, in a more global scale.
0: The methodology that you use in this book obviously played a very important part in the analysis and research phase, but it also plays a central role in how you presented your results within the book. And it gives the book a a certain flavor, I think. Could you explain why you chose the methodology that you did?
1: Um, I think the methodology is really key in some sense because I wanted to be really systematic about how I was approaching the research uh, because I have noticed often that, um, certain kinds of sources can have more weight than others when I'm doing research. And I wanted to try to get as much as I could, of course, um, a broader sense of how mindfulness is playing out in different kinds of people's lives. So in each site in the three countries, um, I, I worked in Chiang Mai, uh, in Mandalay, and in Candy, this kind of second cities of each of the countries, um, looking at how um, a group of monks another group of monks so that i didn't just um inadvertently pick one lineage as representation of mindfulness um so two different groups of monks uh, two different uh, monasteries um and then the university and then um a the psychiatrist at the local psychiatric hospital and staff members there and then villagers i picked 10 of each of these in each place and then did uh, to interview and then 30 surveys in each location, getting to about 600, over 600 altogether. And I think that that methodology is really important. The other important part about the methodology I'd like to point out is the use of language. Because the word sati is a poly term that has been used across Theravada kinds of contexts in areas of religious kinds of contexts, so different kinds of situations. People are using this poly term sati. Uh, to refer to what has been called mindfulness in English. And in each of the three countries that I worked in, uh, even though Pali isn't a colloquial language that people are talking, it's usually the language of religious specialists. In all three of these countries, mindfulness or sati has entered the local um, colloquial idiomatic um, way that people talk in the languages of Thai in and Burmese and Sinhalese. So I really wanted to stick with the same kind of term. And if I had studied mindfulness in English and only talked to people who already spoke English in these areas, I think I would have gotten people who would tell me about um, who would tell me about what mindfulness looks like in these already preconceived English kinds of ways where they already had an idea about what the concept meant and what its framings are and what its interpretations and implications were. And I wanted to stick to this Pali term, sati because this term has been really um, integrated into how people understand uh, mindfulness in an English context. So one might say what I'm doing, in a sense, is doing a comparative analysis of sati and mindfulness in these two kinds of languages. But I really felt like it was important to study sati. Um, and try to ask people what that meant to them. And so I stuck to that, and I I had with me research assistants in each of the different countries, um, and I conducted the research in Thai um, on my own with the help of some research assistants, and I was there for all of them. And I think that these are important points to point out too because I think that um, having that systematic analysis of what what I was asking about Enables me to feel more confident that I have at least a general sense of how mindfulness is practiced in these areas. And the questions themselves are the third point in the methodology I just wanted to mention. Um, I asked basic pretty basic questions in a semi-structured, pretty open interview style, asking you know what is sati, what is mindfulness to you? Um, how did you learn about it? You know, was it from a particular teacher, from certain books, from your from your you know certain monks? Um, You know what kinds of ways do you use it in your everyday life? Um, What what are some instances where you have a lot? Feel like you have a lot of mindfulness when you have a little bit of mindfulness? Um, You know what are the what is the purpose of mindfulness? How do you get mindful? You know how do you get to be more mindful? Um, Are there certain books you read? Um, And then at the end of the interview, I asked questions like, you know, do you feel like mindfulness is the same for everyone everywhere? Do you feel like it's changed over time? Uh, And just asking some more open-ended interviews about, you know, what might mindfulness help offer us if we want to try to make, uh, put it into use for programs for kind of uh, mental health and and, um, personal well-being. All right.
0: So let's turn our attention to one of these countries then. Uh, Thailand plays a very important role in the book, Uh, and you begin by analyzing the differences between the monastic understanding of mindfulness and the lay understanding of mindfulness. Could you explain to us what the similarities and differences are between these two perspectives?
1: Yeah, so I wanted to write that first chapter about the monks because I even though I'm I've been pretty critical about kind of only looking at authoritative sources I think most of my field informants and I would also agree that monks are really the ones who have access to the kinds of teachings both in terms of practice and the textual teachings where mindfulness is really Um, an area that they can really focus on and that they can really develop. And so I started out with the first chapter about monks. um, And I learned a lot about how monks are putting mindfulness into practice and also what kinds of things that they're reading about it and how they're using it. And a lot of Buddhist studies, scholars might say, Oh, well, some of these texts, you know, the Satipatthana Sutta, for example, um, the four foundations of mindfulness. Oh yes. You know, everybody either knows that and they all understand it the same way or, 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 they you know, don't know what it is, and they need to learn what it is in order to better understand what mindfulness is. So this Satipatthana Sutta is kind of this very well-known um, teaching about what mindfulness looks like. But I found that different monks had different ways of interpreting it, for example, and putting it into practice. So I used basically three different monks to focus on for the chapter, and I started with a monk I called Pratip. Uh, in a remote area in northern Thailand, uh, which is the area that I m- mostly have done my research for the past 15 years, uh, in an area I call Mid-Tiang. Um And I looked, basically, I wanted to use this uh, chapter as a chance to look at and introduce readers to some basic teachings about mindfulness within the Buddhist framework. Uh, and I looked at how Pratep understood mindfulness, um, and how he told me how mindfulness to him, uh, he called it which means to be able to recollect. And this idea of recollection also um, in, in informed or inspired the title of the book also, because a lot of what mindfulness looks like is about remembering or bringing the mind back to the present. And Pratep and a lot of monks and a lot of lay people also really looked at how mindfulness to them, helps them to bring the mind back to where they are. So people would talk about how, you know, they would say, well, it's like tying um, the Buffalo to the post and not letting it run away and not running, letting it run away in space and in time. It's kind of bringing back. So I talked about how Pratap had this idea of bringing the mind back to the present. He had been a monkey. Um, before he became a monk. he had been a taxi driver in Bangkok, um, And he said, "Oh, it was so loud there." He said, "Now that I'm in this remote hillside monastery, he was the only one there when I went there that day." Um, And and he said, "You know, now even though I know that actually, even if it's really loud, I should be able to practice, you know, my meditation. But it's really nice here in the quiet." And so I talked about how he understood mindfulness and practice it through his. Um, kind of everyday meditation, not just in terms of sitting, but also how he would walk around on binturba, on the alms round around uh, in the valley. He would, he said, I really like mindfulness of the breath. He said, anapanasati. Um, actually, he used uh, this local term, which is um, this idea of putto He said, when I breathe in and I breathe out, I say the name of the Buddha. And he said, that helps me to bring my mind back. From wherever it's wandering. And it's really, it's really refreshing. It was really refreshing to talk to these monks because they were so practical and they were so, um, they were really talking about how they also struggle with their mind wandering. I think that sometimes, at least I tend to, when I'm away from being near monks, I forget that, that monks also are working to develop their minds and mental cultivation. And, you know, he said, sometimes when I'm walking my my mind wanders somewhere else and I try to focus on the steps when I'm walking on my alms round and I bring my mind back to where I am. So I talked about the ralukdai, the retur- returning or recalling the mind. Uh, he also said to rutua, which means to know the body, like to know where one is. Um, he said that is another way to understand mindfulness. And so then, and the third way I, I talk about how pratep or how monks like pratep understand mindfulness uh, he really made a strong link to morality. He said it, it, it really the the idea of doing good is really closely tied to mindfulness and mindful cultivation. And he talked about morality uh, because he said it's really um, one of the main parts of following the precepts in Buddhism. So um, mindfulness is one of in, in a in a kind of formalized terminology, it's the seventh of the eighth components on the eightfold path. And the eighth the eightfold path is the fourth of the four noble truths in these Theravada teachings. And even though the way that mindfulness fits on this Eightfold Path is in the section on Panya, which is um, wisdom. So he said there's Shila, Samadhi, and Panya. Shila is morality, Samadhi is concentration, and Panya is wisdom. He said mindfulness kind of falls on the section of Panya. He said, and Shila is close, is close to it. He said they're like three friends linked in a chain. So in order to understand one, we need to understand. The others. He said, it really helps me to do good. And when I practice mindfulness, I'm able to do good more. And so they're really linked in his mind. So those were the three main things that I learned uh, from Pratip that I talk about in that chapter. The next part that I talk about, about what I learned from monks about mindfulness, I talk about a monk I met uh, in the area named Prachan. And I use Prachan's it's my encounter with Prachanda to talk about a little book um, called the Nawaka Wat, which is a basic text. It's only like 30 pages or even 25 pages. And it's basically the the general ideas about Buddhism that people in Thailand learn. So it references a lot of these more complicated texts in the ways that people are understanding Buddhism, but it's more of what, what like a a lay person or a beginning novice monk uh, might encounter when they're trying to understand mindfulness for the first time in these formal Buddhist contexts. So most monks in Thailand will memorize this little booklet. And in this booklet, uh, the the first page, on the first page, I came across this teaching of mindfulness. And it says one of the two qualities that are the most most important, they call it Dhammas of great assistance, and the other one is Sampajana, which is re- relates to awareness and mindfulness. Or Satiya is the first one, and they say it's the ability to recollect. And so, right away, mindfulness is seen as this really basic idea. Another another one of the ideas that Nwaka Wat kind of touches on is about these four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. And so a Buddhist studies scholar might say, oh, well, you know, this concept, this idea of the Satipatthana Sutta is really elaborate, and it might be something that only a really, you know, formal, um, a very, uh, you know, Studious monk, you know, that has been working for a long time might come across, but actually, even novice monks and lay people uh, will, will read about the Satipatthana Sutta in this shorter form. So, the Satipatthana Sutta section in the Nawaka Wat talks about um, becoming mindful of the body, of feelings, of the mind or heart in Thai, uh, jit, jit or jai, um, and then mental formations of Dhamma. So, you have Rupa, Vedana, Jitta, and Dhammas. And so these ideas of looking at mindfulness and how we can understand mindfulness through focusing on these different kinds of concepts comes across in this little booklet that a lot of people have access to in the area. And the third one that the Nawaka looks at um, that, I, that I talk about in the book, it mentions mindfulness in a few different kinds of areas too, but are about the Anusati or the recollections or things that might be good to keep in mind or to think about when one's thinking about mindfulness. So basically it's like, having mindfulness to be aware of different kinds of qualities. And people often talk to me about um, being aware of or remembering or being mindful of the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings. And then the third thing I really learned from the monks was through talking to Praman, um, a monk that I talk about who I met at Wat Suandok in uh, in Chiang Mai, which is a university um, monastery in Chiang Mai. So uh, Prachan uh, was lo- working at a local small a monastery in the countryside that novices would go to, and then some of them, after graduating from kind of the elementary levels of the monastic school, would then potentially go to the monastic high school in Chiang Mai, and then some of them would continue on to the university. So, Praman was at this um, monastic university, and I talk about some of the texts that he uses um, in that, and he talks about things like the um, which is the path of purification. Um, one of the older texts or the kind of one of the most important commentaries uh, in the Buddhist uh, Pali Canon. Um, and he also talks about Sati and Abhidhamma, some of these other texts. So I introduced certain kinds of texts, but I really was really interested in how he uses the idea of mindfulness. And again, kind of, he talked to me about some of his own struggles or kind of how he got better about it. And he talks about how he used to have an issue with anger and how he would feel angry and he would even say, like sometimes the novice monks, you know, I was teaching, they wouldn't listen, and I wanted to just like hit them on the head, and I was really surprised because, you know, I was like, what do you mean a monk is hitting novices? That's not that very monastic sounding, and and I was surprised that you know a lot of the monks I talked to said you know they really they sometimes wanted to just hit the the novices, and even one novice said I was scared of you know I, I, when I don't have mindfulness, I I felt like I was I I was scared of getting hit by one of the monks, but I don't think the monks really hit the novices, but they talk about it as a way to think about their own emotion and their own ability to use mindfulness to have a sense of emotional control over themselves. So Praman talked about how the more he meditated, the more he spent time at the monastery, he was able to feel less and less of these kinds of angry feelings and be able to maintain a sense of calm. And how he said he wouldn't get wrapped up in his emotion because he said, it's not really myself. It's not really who I am. He said, when I would get angry, I would say, well, that's something that's going to pass. That's something that passes in time. And so he used this idea of mindfulness, he said, to be able to remember to not get too wrapped up in his own feelings. And now he said he actually goes into um, uh, jails, into prisons in Thailand to teach, to offer teachings about mindfulness to the inmates. And I think that this was really fascinating, too. He said, and, and he even said sometimes, like, before I would go into the jails, I would feel a little bit scared or just uneasy. And he said he would use mindfulness, too, to remember to not be scared or to feel a sense of calmness. And so in that chapter, overall, I talk about how uh, the different monks that I talked to, um, offered ways to think about, as I mentioned earlier, about these tapes of mindfulness. So about temporality, I noticed that the monks talked about mindfulness as attending to the present, but also the sense of recollection or remembering or bringing the mind back to the present, being able to recall the mind to where one is. So some of the monks would say, you know, oh, I remembered to be present for this interview when we set it up. And so they would use mindfulness in that sense. For affect, I noticed a sense of calmness the monks would talk. A, a lot of the monks would talk about this sense of mindfulness, allowing them to be calm, um, not really like really happy in a kind of exuberant way, and not really emotionless and I kind of not invested in what I'm doing, but a sense of calmness. Um, the power I talked about. Um, they talked about self empowerment, but it wasn't really a big theme. The power aspect, although I could see that the monks, that especially ones who had, who it seemed like had a lot of mindfulness or or were um, were Um, invested in this sense of mindfulness. It's had a sense of uh, empowerment or self-empowerment, but it wasn't something they talked about a lot. But the um, ethics of the tapes um, was another big one that they talked about a lot. They talked about morality, about the the morality of mindfulness, the importance of being good in a way I hadn't really expected necessarily. And they said, mindfulness helps me to be good. And also when I'm good, it helps me to develop my mindfulness. And so it was really a big theme for them. And then the fifth tape, the one of uh, self, uh, it definitely seemed like the monks were talking about how they could kind of cultivate a self or themselves, but it wasn't the same kind of self-cultivation I was used to. They really talked about how by cultivating mindfulness, they were able to develop a sense of self that was based on recognizing that they were not actually um, tied to a certain kind of person, that they that they had this sense that there wasn't really even a self to begin with, and this of course t- touches on uh, the third of uh, the three or the, th- the one of the characteristics or one of the three characteristics um, in some Theravada teachings about non self, this teaching that we don't really have a self. And so these monks would talk about how mindfulness helped them to understand that they didn't really have a self to begin with. So that was that chapter to try to look at how uh, the monks offered. Uh, both a sense of textual teachings that they encountered and that they um, engaged with, not just in these kind of esoteric, difficult to access kind of books. Although the ones that had spent more time studying did read them. Some of the monks said, Oh, you know, I read the whole Tripitaka, um, but other ones said, you know, I just read a little bit of basic text." So the textual teachings, a little bit about mindfulness and also how they practice the sense of practice. Um, and, also kind of how each one is putting it to use in their own way. And so I really got this sense uh, that, that practice was really key. And at the end of the chapter, I kind of talk about how many of the monks said, well, you know, if you really want to understand it, Julia, you really need to practice. You really need to go and meditate. And so I end the chapter with this kind of recognition that even though the textual teachings seem really important, it's really, for many of them, meditation is really, really key to understanding mindfulness also.
0: It's interesting what you just said about the retreat centers in Thailand, because this is obviously one of the ways in which the laity come in contact with the monastic understanding or understandings of mindfulness. Um, So what can you tell us about mindfulness and how it's presented and experienced in the many meditation retreats across Thailand?
1: Yeah, so... There are a lot of meditation opportunities for people in Thailand um, and across Southeast Asia, and especially more recently. Um, Eric Braun has a good book about the emergence of the mindfulness movement through uh, some teachings in Burma from uh, early part of the century. But there's a lot of different kinds of ways that meditation and 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 uh, lay lay practice is available to people in the area, and for international um, international meditators also. Um, Brooke Shednick just has a book coming out about lay international meditators in Thailand also. And so, there are a lot of different ways that people have a chance to go and practice this meditation. And I remember I met a man um, that I call Kay in Chiang Mai who he had been talking with his friends about mindfulness. And I could hear him at the next table. And this gets into the kind of participant observation thing—not just the systematic, you know, interviews, but just kind of listening and being there. And I, I heard him say, you know, mindfulness is really the most key thing, and it's going to get, you know, can bring you to nirvana and all this stuff with his buddies speaking in Thai. And I said, excuse me, I heard you talking about you know, mindfulness, what, you know, where did you practice this? And he said, Oh, that monastery just over the hill, uh, what Rampung in Chiang Mai said, they are really good at it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should go investigate. So I talk in the chapter about uh, different kinds of ways of practicing meditation. And I do that for two reasons. One is to understand some of the variable ways that people practice mindfulness to look at different techniques And the second one is to just offer a little bit phenomenologically of how mindfulness feels and how one might get better at it. Monks and lay people, I had noticed, um, don't really talk a lot about the feeling of mindfulness. When I would ask them and they would say things like, "Um, at first when I started meditating, it felt really hot and and uncomfortable and itchy and, and I wanted to get up. But then after I practiced for a while, it got better. It would be those kinds of General feelings, but in general, people wouldn't really say much at all. And I think that that has to do with, first of all, monks don't, are taught not to really talk about themselves a lot and to say, you know, me and my experience. Um, And also because I think as people meditate, they become less um, tied to the idea of words and descriptions of of what they're doing and they want to distance um, the sense of meditation. It kind of creates its own space. And Michael Paggis, um talks about that in some of her work about meditation retreats and how they kind of turn people away from discourse into kind of a quiet space. But I really felt like if I wanted to write about mindfulness in the region, I needed to try to meditate and to try to write about what it felt like to meditate. So even though... Uh, everybody and every every person has a different experience. Uh, I talk about my own experiences with a series of five meditation retreats to try to introduce some of the different practices and also how one might uh, progress in the path of meditation. So I talked about the first two uh, were about uh, some Goenka. Um, SN Goenka mindfulness meditation retreats, Um, the Vipassana retreats. uh, He's very famous internationally uh, and he is teacher's teacher. uh, Ledi Sayadaw in Burma was one of the proponents of the lay mindfulness movement uh, in that area and across into Thailand. Uh, Goenka talks about uh, mindfulness within the sense of the Satipatthana Sutta. He really focuses on this Satipatthana Sutta, especially the first, first of the four foundations of mindfulness about bodily sensations. When I first went into the, the um, Goenka retreat, this was actually about almost 20 years ago now in Dharamsala in India, I, I did a Goenka retreat. And I remember I had to sign a psychological health form. And I remember at the time thinking this is kind of strange, but it turned out to be a really difficult experience. Um, And Willoughby Brighton is now writing about some of the kind of Side effects for some of these long-term Goenkā practitioners, and how like there's some 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 aspects of the teachings where pe- people are not as as informed in what people are actually what some of the history and the tradition um, suggests. Without having a particular kind of teacher, can struggle with some of this because it is a really intense experience. I remember when I did that, I was really um, the most prominent feeling I had when I was there was how horribly boring it was. It was so. It was terrible. I was really, really bored. And I think that for people in the region that I was, you know, studying in Southeast Asia, most people already know a little bit about what they're doing when they do a, the first meditation retreat. So I hope that that's not the experience of everybody. But I think for a lot of people, especially new meditators, it is. I really felt like I just wanted. I thought about everything I could think of, and nothing seemed to. You know, time just seemed to stand still. And that it was a ten-day course, and by the time I finished, I thought never again i'm done i'm not I'm not going to do this again, but somehow, a few years later i I signed up for another one. i think i I really felt refreshed from it, and I really liked this sense of um, kind of noticing I remember hearing about change and about impermanence a lot, and how I was more attentive and attuned to what was going on. Um, after I finished the Goenka retreat. And so I think, you know, Goenka's emphasis on bodily sensations, in some ways, he's really um, um, following what he calls, you know, the Buddhist teaching. So I, in my book, I really try really hard not to say this is the correct way or this is the real way or this is the right way. I think for each of the different teachers and different monks and lay people, they have their own interpretation. Um, Goenka has some kind of novel <laughs> ways of looking at. Practice. He talks about bhikkhus or you know monastics could be lay people also. You know if we think about how a bhikkhu could be a practitioner, um, but he really focuses on these bodily sensations and says this is going back through his teachers, teacher's teacher, teacher, uh, through to the Vesudamanga, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, to the quote you know original words of the Buddha. The second meditation retreat I did of Goenka was easier. It was still really difficult. Uh, But I remember thinking, and this was in Pizza Nuwak in in central Thailand, and I remember thinking about how I realized that if I didn't think about trying to be productive, I could actually, if I just dropped a thought right when when it came to me, rather than try to work it out. Because in the first one, I had thought, well, if I just think about a thought long enough. I can solve a problem and maybe figure out what I'm doing next week when I get out of here or come up with a project for a new research paper or something. And I realized that the second one, if I just dropped the thought when I first got it, then I actually could get the time to go by faster. And of course, um, an hour is a long time. And and we were doing multiple hours one after the other. And so I kind of thought, well, all right, if I can just get the time to go by, I can be done with this because it was still very, very difficult. And it finally finished, and it was really pleasant. I had a good experience, uh, but it was still really difficult. The third retreat I did was a year or two later, and this was at um, the monastery um, at Wat Sun Mok. uh, Buddha Dasabiku is one of the, probably the most famous Thai monastic. Um, Some people might say Ajahn Chan, Payuto. It really depends on who you talk to, but he is really known as kind of the popular uh, modernist intellectual monk in Thailand. Um, And he has written hundreds and hundreds of books. um, And he talks about impermanence. He talks about non-self a lot. Um, Don Swearer had a a great um, book that was working with him uh, called Me and Mine and how to kind of distance senses of self. Uh, But Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu's meditation, and I did another 10-day retreat there in southern Thailand, um, talks about mostly about anapanasati, which is the mindfulness of the breath. And he says, Yes, the Satipatthana Sutta and the fo- focus on the body is important. And he said, But the anapanasati, and we have anapanasati, so it's the mindfulness there of breathing, he said, is really important. Breathing in and breathing out and focusing on the breath in that way. And like the Goenka one, it was hour long sessions. But I noticed during this one that. Not only would I try to drop a thought when it first came to me, but I would also not kind of get upset at myself if I realized that I was traveling with a thought. I was thinking with a thought as it went on. And I realized that if I could just say, all right, well, you know what? I was thinking that, but now I'm not going to, and that's okay. I would actually not just have the time go by, but I would have a more pleasant experience at it. I also realized at that, that, that retreat, I think it was one night I was in some... I was sleeping on this cement slab in this hut and really uncomfortable and thinking, I think I realized at one point how extreme the extreme version of what I was doing really would look like. And I don't think I had really realized that until that point. And I feel like sometimes when um, mindfulness practitioners in some contexts, in lay contexts, Practice mindfulness. They say, "Well, I don't want to go go there and really kind of take it to the take it to the edge." Um, they don't necessarily know what that looks like, and I definitely also don't know. But I think I glimpsed that sense of really kind of what it might mean to really give up a sense of self, and it was a really strange feeling. And I realized, you know, maybe I'm I'm not either not ready or I just don't want to don't want to do that. But it was a really interesting experience to just realize this sense of, you know, the the way that meditation works at an extreme, um, suggests and kind of demands or requires, or just even the side effect is a really different way of life, uh, than what I had been even uh, living or even had been thinking about it, uh, thinking about how I would use mindfulness uh, in the past. So I thought that was also important. I had two more meditation retreats I talk about in the book. And the fourth one, um, was at, um, um uh, a cave temple, Tam Thong in, uh, Northern Thailand. Uh, it's a cave in the woods in the forest and it's connected to Wat Rampung and Wat Jom Thong, which are some of the monasteries uh, that the man Kay had pointed to when he had said, you know, he just got out of a retreat and they're tied to, um, Ajahn Thong's work, on certain kinds of meditation uh, based on his trips to Burma, um, in the 1950s, I think it is, 40s or 50s. And in this, he talks about, or at Tong, when I was there, they talk about a certain kind of noting sensations on the body, and especially through walking. They practice a certain kind of walking. Uh, they call it yup na, pong na and Thai, about picking up the foot and carrying it over and putting it down. And in this kind of way of meditating, people are taught to really pay attention to sensations on the body and noting the sensations, but also this kind of super slow walking. And so I remember in this, we didn't have a scheduled hour by hour meditation. It was more individual. And I I liked that. I, I spent an hour kind of cleaning the cave floor and the path in the woods. And I spent an hour walking across a room back and forth. And I really got this sense of a more... I got a stronger sense of what it would look like to take that meditation outside of the monastery and use it in my everyday life. Because the first couple of meditation retreats I'd been to, they had um, they had been kind of that. once they ended, my life was very different. <laughs> like I immediately got on a train or a plane or or I had to go back to my regular busy lifestyle. And at this one I really noticed that I was able to understand more how it might be useful outside of the monastery in kind of just going through my everyday experience. I also had a strange encounter when I was at Tamtong. I, I didn't really investigate it much, but I remember one day I was walking to the to the cave in the forest and I heard some people screaming in the in the woods and I and I remember thinking that is kind of definitely creepy. And at the end of the At the end of the retreat, I asked my host mother, who I had gone to the retreat with, although I hadn't seen her or talked to her the whole time of it. We were in a pickup truck on the way back in the mountains. uh, And I said, what was that? And she said, it was um, a way to attack one's own karmic buildup uh, and how there are certain kind of practitioners can help you to get at your past lives and you can get at your karma and you can work through your karma. And I was really dumbfounded because it sounded really scary, but she said, you know, it's basically about your spirits of yourself, your sense of your past lives. And she said, you have to have really strong mindfulness in order to be able to do it. And so that was kind of a cluing me in to a different way of understanding mindfulness that I hadn't really been aware of that ties mindfulness to ideas about spirituality and spirits and kind of powers of the mind uh, that I then talk about. Uh, later in the book, but the fifth meditation retreat I did, uh, was really an unstructured one. I found a monastery near, um, the area that I had been doing research in, in Medjang in Northern Thailand, I call it Mei Long, And in this meditation retreat, it was more like I went there and the, the people, the, mon- the monastics there said, sure, we have an extra kuti or, or a place to, to, to meditate and you're welcome to stay. And I said I'd like to stay for a week, and they said great. And I noticed there um, there were women. There were four women in dark robes, which is unusual in Thailand. Um, they are they were not uh, bikuni, which is the female monastic, um, but they were. Um, they told me that they were mei chi, which is like a monastic nun, but they said, oh, well, we just wear the dark robes because that way, you know, if we're in the woods, our robes won't get dirty. And I thought that was really interesting because it really reminded me that some of these political connotations about gender and how meditation monastics uh, are able to access certain kinds of practices is a lot more complicated um, than I had been expecting. But during the week I was there, I spent the time, uh, as I had been taught in the other ones, uh, you know, sitting for an hour, walking for an hour and sweeping the path and cutting vegetables for for the food. I also noticed at this uh, meditation monastery, little tiny bits of more political kinds of issues were raised. I mean, the gendered one, I noticed it wasn't really talked about until I left and I talked to them at all five of these meditation retreats. There was no talking and there was no writing. And I think that helped me to develop the mindfulness. Um, But I also noticed around halfway through, at one point, there was one monk and these uh, four um, female monastics, um, and they kind of had some little tiny chat and i wondered what it was and it wasn't until i left a week later they kind of laughed and said oh what are the government going to be up to next and after i left i realized that there had been a coup in thailand and this was in 2014 and that had been the extent of their discussion about it and i thought it was really interesting that to them they said you know this is worth mentioning but it's also something to to kind of to to be aware of but to focus on the practice itself and so that that meditation retreat i really developed my sense of meditation through recognizing, um, kind of a piece of meditation. And I really, I actually started to get attached to that sense of peace. And so at the end of the chapter, I talk about how even that sense of peace through meditation is something that people who are developing their meditation in the area are aware of, and they, they, they work to kind of separate themselves from. And at the end of the chapter, I revisit the tapes again, and I kind of there are a lot that are that is similar from the monks and the meditation, but I talk about how uh, for temporality, I talk about how often people would say they went to meditate so that they they became they weren't forgetful. So it kind of gets into this this memory thing again. But how this idea of time, how being in the present also requires a kind of control of the mind to be in the present through being able to recall it from where it wanders off to in the past. Um, for affect, I noticed. Again, this sense of this um, calmness, which and some of the ways that I was taught in these retreats had to do with equanimity, or to to not get attached, not just to a sense of self, but also to not getting attached to a certain kind of emotion. At uh, one of them, at the Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu one, I remember getting taught uh, about how um, if let's say a bee stings you, and then you think, oh well, it's it's it can be unpleasant, but it doesn't necessarily make one angry if one's aware that 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 feeling will also pass. So it had to do with this teaching of non-attachment. For power, this sense of self-empowerment, for ethics, uh, it continued this sense of doing good and feeling good um, are related. And this idea of mindfulness as being able to be more cultivated when one is doing less. So the sense of, well, if you're not talking, you can't really do things wrong or you can't, uh, it's, it's mo- less likely that you'll say things that are lies. For example, um, if you're able to, um, keep silence and focus on your meditation. So there was this strong sense of ethics, but it was more geared toward, um, the ethical cultivation of the practice itself. I also realized in the, um, in the meditation retreats that towards the end of most of them, there's this part um, where the meditators are taught to have a moment of um, loving kindness meditation or metta dharuna, where one is taught to extend their meditation uh, benefits, uh, the benefits of the meditation or the feeling of calmness to others around them um, to have this sense. I think in the Mahayana or Northern traditions, it would be seen as kind of compassion, uh, this sense of um, how one would want to share that feeling. So that was also seen as an ethical quality. And the last of the tapes, the sense of self um, was really, really heavily focused on not getting attached to this sense of self or to one's emotion. And so when I went back, I went back to my, what may about a year after I finished the, the retreat when I was writing up the book and I wanted to just say hi um, and offer a little dana or donation to the monastery. All of them were free. Um, when I was there. And I remember going up to the head monk who I had t- interviewed the last day, and uh, he, he, he'd forgotten about me. And I thought, well, that's really good. <laughs> and I thought, that's really a nice, a nice reminder that, that even though I'm trying to write about meditation, it's really not about me. I'm trying to focus on this sense of meditation as the cultivation of mindfulness and the development of mindfulness through these different kinds of practices.
0: A particularly interesting part of your book and one that I really enjoyed myself was chapter three entitled Power and Ghost of Insanity in Lay Thai Life. Very interesting title. Uh, (laughs) You say in Thailand, mindfulness is is kind of surrounded by an aura of power and that practicing mindfulness is believed to bring with it a sort of power. Uh, What are the ways in which this power is used or harnessed and which context does this appear
1: yeah. So there are so many. I was really, I think that this was the thing that was one of the most surprising parts of my research um, about how much power came into the ways that people are practicing and understanding mindfulness. And I think that, you know, a lot of it was about self-empowerment. And I think that that might sound familiar with how mindfulness is getting articulated in, uh, in lots of different kinds of contexts. Um, so one of the ways has to do with this sense of, you know, I, I have my mindfulness. So people use this term in a colloquial sense of, you know, my niece at the, I don't have my mindfulness. So my research assistant said, you know, I have to go run out in the rain to get a battery cord. And he came back and he said, oh no, I, I, I actually got into a little car accident. And he said, you know, I told you it was raining out and I don't really know how to drive well. And he said, everybody's fine. He said, but I said, you know, I don't have mindfulness. That's what happened. And he said, if I, if I, if I work on my mindfulness, I will develop it more. And I was actually almost half of the people I interviewed of the 150 people I talked to in Thailand, over half of them mentioned something about driving a car, which I thought was amazing. So people would really talk about, you know, I develop my mindfulness and I'm able to be more in control of myself and also what's going on around me. So people would say, you know, oh, I dropped my mindfulness for a second, or don't forget to have mindfulness. There was a, I remember there was a commercial on TV uh, that was sponsored by a laundry detergent company that had a, a, a teenager driving and he started to get mad at the car in front of him and he got out and he goes over there and says, you know, and Ty, of course, um, you know, let's get out and fight. And right when he's about to to you know, start a fight, the, the video camera, there's a little video camera pause on the s- front of the screen. It says, just stop and think. Think about what's going to happen. What has happened in the past? What happens now? What happens in the future? Use your mindfulness to... Recognize what you should be doing, and and after this video pauses, there's a little bell, and it sounds like a meditation bell or something. And then he goes, he says, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and he to, his, to the to the person, other person driving, and he goes back in his car. And the, the ad says, "You know, use mindfulness to walk down the path of life." And I thought it was just such a nice reminder about what mindfulness does for people. It really is seen as a way for them to kind of develop a sense of of. Um, you know, being kind of in control of who they are, and um, this came across a lot. I found um, in in elementary school textbooks. So I went to the to the place where they sell the textbooks that elementary school teachers will go to buy them to use them in their classes, and I found talk about mindfulness all the way from like six years old to like you know, throughout through high school, um, little instances in the teachings, especially in the, the textbooks about Buddhism and society about religious studies about, you know, remember to use mindfulness, and you'll be safer, or remember to use mindfulness, and everybody will get along sometimes later in the, the later years, they talk about breathing in and breathing out or the mindfulness of the breath or, or different kinds of aspects of the uh, four foundations of mindfulness, but a lot of them were these very Practical ways that mindfulness was put into use. It wasn't just kind of self empowerment, though. It was also about social empowerment, or how people could understand mindfulness to help each other. And this even crossed off into crossed over into political power. So, um, at one point, after I got done with the meditation retreat, um, I went back to Chiang Mai where I keep an apartment, and uh, the coup had happened. And I and I had I asked my neighbor um, what. What, um, you know, what happened? And she said, well, the government is, is doing this to give mindfulness back to the people. Uh, and I, and she said, we'd all been all riled up. There was a long controversy in Thailand about, uh, yellow shirts and red shirts and different ways of understanding, um, political engagement. And she said, they're giving us mindfulness And I thought that sounds too pat somehow. Somehow it seemed like, oh, really, did you hear that somewhere? And later on, I heard on the radio, there was a government message saying, yes, we're giving people mindfulness. And I thought that was fascinating because that's another way that mindfulness is getting used to create a certain kind of political kind of of citizen or a certain kind of political way of expressing power saying, you know, oh, let's all be mindful. But it was kind of manipulated just like commercials or (laughs) political campaigns would take this idea of mindfulness that people really like and believe in and kind of value and saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one who's giving you mindfulness. And a year later, the prime minister, I was looking at one of his broadcasts and he did, does these weekly broadcasts and he would, he said, you know, this let's all remember to be mindful and not listen to our neighbors. Let's listen to what, you know, what is best for us. And so he was really using this sense of mindfulness. Another way that mindfulness um, was used for power um, that you mentioned, you know, you, you mentioned in the title, there, are the ghosts of insanity um, is about not just personal powers, not just social powers or political powers, but also these kind of spiritual powers that extend past, past the individual and create And this is, I think, a really fascinating way that mindfulness gets used. It to create a certain kind of understanding of what the self is that looks really different from this idea of the individual person that's practicing mindfulness for their own self cultivation or their own self empowerment. So people would talk about how, you know, they would talk about developing mindfulness to, you know, avoid accidents while driving or to get A's on tests, you know. But they would also use it to talk about how they could. Um, be mindful so that they didn't get sick, mentally sick or physically sick. And part of the reason why people understand getting sick is this sense of spirits or Quan. And this is in the Northern Thai, also Southern China, Northern Myanmar, Lao in this kind of general Thai area. Uh, the sense of kwan has to do with spirits of the self that can get lost or scattered. And different people, especially spirit mediums, but also um, local um Local medicine doctors uh, would tell me uh, mindfulness or sati and kwan are very similar, and some would even say they're the same. They say if you have your mindfulness, you have your kwan, and if you have your kwan together, uh, you won't get sick. And people, a lot of people would tell me when I when I you know was surprised by something um, like a tree fell down in front of me, and and I was startled and I lost my kwan or my mindfulness escaped. Or when, uh, and then they said they would get sick or people would say, you know, my grandmother passed away and I heard her spirit. I heard her talk to me and, and she said, have mindfulness. And so there's this sense that when one's attachments or one's feelings or emotions kind of get scattered or lost when something happens, either something sad happens or bad, or they're surprised or they're having some problems. Um, I, I recently wrote an article in a in a journal for um, transcultural psychiatry about how you know often people will say they 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 had some psychiatric issues if there were some kind of structural uh, social issues uh, then they would they would practice their mindfulness because they understood themselves as not having their mindfulness their mindfulness got scattered so in this chapter here I talk about how this sense of scattered mindfulness creates. Um, an imbalanced or a kind of um, a mindless, you could say a mindless mind that creates certain kinds of illnesses, mental illnesses, but also physical illnesses. Like Sen had mentioned, my friend Sen, when I, when I first started uh, talking to him about mindfulness, he said, you know, everybody here at the psychiatric hospital is, they're here because they're, they're mindless. And so a lot of these stories about ghosts and in Thailand, you know, there's so many ghost stories. They're really all over the place. (laughs) Um, there's that really this sense of of ghosts are seen as attachments or, or emotions or feelings that one has to another person or to a thing or an idea, uh, that have gotten kind of dislodged and is wandering, wandering around. Um, and so this, these ideas of attachments that get dislodged, are seen to be tied to this idea of, you know, well, mindfulness helps you recall the mind and bring it back, bring it back from wherever it was, because a lot of the ghostly kind of scary effects in Thailand have to do with people thinking about the past in a certain way and saying, okay, I wish, I wish things could be a certain way. So when people, for example, if they die in in accidents or in, in unnatural kinds of circumstances, um, people will say, well, I'm especially scared of these ghosts. And some people will interpret that as, um, well, my mind has kind of moved over to them and they, it's hard to get my mind back to where I am. So there's this ghost story called, um, about Nang Nak, um, uh, a story about ghosts who um, uh, comes back Is this old story that almost everybody in Thailand has heard of um, that that comes back to haunt her husband who thinks that she's still alive. And when he realizes, when she extends her arm under the the house uh, deck, and and he realizes like eerily that she's actually a ghost and she's dead, and he had just been overly attached to her. He goes to um, a monk and the monk uh, performs some chants in the forest and puts the spirit to rest. And in the book, I talk about how this monk partly is developing these powers over the spirits because of this strong sense of mindfulness and this strong sense of these powers of mindfulness that are so powerful that they can actually affect the spiritual realm. And these are, this is a whole area that I think is really underdeveloped in a lot of ways that people understand mindfulness, how mindfulness is not just about the individual, but also about how our social worlds and even spiritual worlds are affected by these feelings and attachments that mindfulness uh, is part of and mindfulness is involved in controlling or having power with. I end the chapter uh, kind of talking a little bit about how these powers are also in play in the healthcare system, how mindfulness, the way that mindfulness is understood um, in the psychiatric hospital, especially with the doctors who often align themselves with, you know, Bangkok or these international ways of understanding mindfulness, um, put them into these contexts that have to do with how mindfulness might be understood in the West and how it gets contextualized in Western kinds of areas. And I talk about how a lot of them, when they do implement mindfulness in their practices, they don't necessarily talk about it in terms of these Um, Kwan or these ghosts or talking about them in necessarily in terms of some of these more local meanings because they want to have ties to these international contexts. And so I talk about how the power of mindfulness is not just about the spiritual or the supernatural or the social, but also is about the political in the sense of how uh, globally ideas and meanings travel internationally in certain ways and how even in a small setting like a psychiatric hospital in Chiang Mai we see these the powers of mindfulness being uh, aligned and uh, how mindfulness is understood based on who is in power to decide what mindfulness looks like and so i talk about how when we are thinking about what mindfulness is we might not want to just look at how mindfulness is understood in western context or thai context but how it's understood in lots of different kinds of contexts and i use that as a way to um, transition over to talking about how mindfulness is understood, not just in Thailand, but in these other Theravada contexts in, in Burma and in Sri Lanka.
0: Now, some of the examples that we were just discussing are very clearly specific to the Thai context. So this makes me wonder in what ways the Thai understanding of mindfulness differs from the Burmese understanding of mindfulness. And in what ways are they similar?
1: In many ways, it's very similar. I, I went to Burma or Myanmar and, um, To basically ask similar kinds of questions, but to try to get a little bit more of a sense of the variability and also some of the similarity, to try to build up a sense of, you know, these are how this is how mindfulness really looks in the region, but also how it might be understood in a different sense. And I think Myanmar or Burma is really a nice place to look because a lot of these um, traditions that then have developed into what is known as this global mindfulness movement have come from some of these areas. And especially from Mahasi Sayadaw um, and Ledi Sayadaw and different kinds of monastics that really popularized um, the lay ways of understanding mindfulness, uh, especially the sense of notation and paying attention to sensation. So I was really curious, you know, would it look more like these international styles? Would it look more like the Thai styles? Would it have its own look? And so when I went there, I basically asked exactly similar kinds of uh, People where I talked to monks, um, you know, monastics, uh, psychiatric hospital staff members, lay people, and university students. And I found that there was more of a little bit more of a sense of notation. In, in, in Myanmar, um, this, the word thati, so it's, uh, it's pronounced uh, thati. This term is more, even more colloquialized. So it's more in the regular Burmese language, and it can mean lots of different things. That ta can mean um, to note, that ya can mean uh, to to remember, um, and people would talk about them in these different ways. So some people talk to me about notation, or uh, they would talk about how they would miss they would miss um, miss people. So they would say, uh, my my research uh, assistant. Um Tiri, her her mother, when I left Myanmar, she said, "You know, I will that be yeah. You, I will miss you. I will think of you. I will remember you." And so we have these senses of notation. We have these senses of memory. Uh, but people would tell me a whole range of kinds of context. So people would say, "You know, I, 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 I remember one said, um, well, I was going to plant my fields, and then I." I went to a big party the night before I was going to put the pesticide on and I forgot to put the pesticide on. And at that moment I forgot my mindfulness. I didn't have mindfulness. So it's this sense of memory or remembering to do something or another um, man said to me, well, um, I, I actually, um, I got into a fight with one of my, one of my examiners at school and I hit him and, and I, and I left and I really, that was a, a moment that I didn't have mindfulness. And so I, a lot of this has to do with remembering and they would talk about remembering to do good, to remember to do good things. So compared to Thailand, there was a little bit more of a focus on doing good. Uh, in Thailand, there was definitely also a very strong focus on doing good, but in, in Myanmar, um, people would say, um, we have to remember to do uh, the good things and to do things. Well, people also talked about uh, driving a lot as did people in Thailand um, People talked about uh, how we should remember to uh, study, to do well on exams. You know, a lot of the monks talked about the Abhidhamma. So I think in Myanmar, there's more of an emphasis on the Abhidhamma, although some of the texts that I was pointed to, uh, they would say uh, it's not just about memory. Mindfulness isn't just about memory. They would say in the Abhidhamma, it teaches us that it's also about remembering to do good, which I thought was really interesting, too. And there was also more, compared to Thailand, there was even more of a sense of a lay... Familiarity with what mindfulness looks like. So I remember one of the last monks I interviewed said, "You know, don't bother interviewing lay people; they won't really know much." <laughs> that was kind of a theme throughout. That like, you know, monks are the ones who know, and the lay people don't. And and definitely, you know, almost everybody I talked to was familiar with the idea of mindfulness across all three areas uh, in Thailand, in Myanmar, and in Sri Lanka. But um, some people who weren't ordained were like, "I think I recognize it. Yeah, it means like to be aware, to remember, you know." to be Mm -hmm. present. Right. You know, but this, I remember this monk said that, and then I went to this tea shop and I talked to this one man, I think it was for almost four hours and he was a lay person and he had lots of ideas about mindfulness in his own way. And he said, do you, you know, do you have mindfulness now? And I said, I guess so a little bit, you know, he said, well, then what foot did you get used to step off of your motorcycle when you came into this tea shop? I said, I don't know. And he said, well, if you had mindfulness, you really want to be paying attention to that. And he said he used to be in the army and he said, well, that's what they teach you in the army to step left, right, left, right. And he said, they're basically developing mindfulness. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was really fascinating that he was saying, this is how mindfulness is really getting used. It's to develop a sense of concentration, to note what you're doing and to remember what you're doing. There were also um, talk about super pa- supernatural powers of the mind, not as much about Kwan, uh, but about Bala or different kinds of understandings of ghosts. Compared to Thailand, there was a little bit more of a sense that ghosts even have their own lives. And so they have their own um, have their own mindfulness, which didn't really come up in Thailand a lot. Uh, in Thailand, it was more like ghosts are kind of dislodged um, um, cravings and, and wishings and attachments. Um, but in, in Burma, some people said, you know, the ghosts have their own things to do. Um, but compared to Thailand, there was more of a sense of, um, you know, we could have control over the, the supernatural also, which was definitely also the case in Thailand. A couple people mentioned to me, well, I used to think that mindfulness was to miss someone. So somebody said, well, I, when I was little, I thought, well, if I'm away from my parents and I i think of them i have mindfulness of them and he said but now um, i realize that it's to note set my sensations and i thought that was really interesting too because i it reminded me that often at least in my own field or in some of the psychology the areas of psychology and even in buddhist studies sometimes too there's this sense of reifying other places in time and I, I wanted to point out in this book, you know, that in these areas, ideas about what mindfulness looks like and and by extension what ideas about the mind looks like are also changing as different messages are circulating and translating around the world. And I thought that was also really important. And in the when I went to go to the psychiatric hospital, I think the psychiatric hospital outside of Mandalay was the most difficult place to get access to, but as with other areas, people were super friendly and really and willing and interested in talking to me. Um, I noticed at the psychiatric, government psychiatric hospital in Myanmar also there was a DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, uh, which is the kind of quote Bible of a mental uh, disorder um, was also being used there, which I thought was very interesting because it really is suggestive that mindfulness or ways of understanding the mind that are created in Western context are also getting used in the hospital. Uh, but in the hospital in, outside of, of uh, Mandalay in Myanmar, uh, the psychiatrists were more willing compared to in Thailand to use these local ideas. But some of them said, well, we don't really need to incorporate mindfulness in our treatments because everybody already gets that from the monasteries. And so that was another slight difference in how mindfulness is used. But in general, thinking about the tapes and thinking about the temporality, there was this sense of remembrance. Um, in terms of affect, there was also this sense of calmness um, and kind of equanimity and kind of not feeling attached to one's emotions. Uh, for the power, there was this sense of the self-empowerment, but also the social empowerment or the sense of power over mind and also uh, politics and the supernatural. Um, there was this ethical component, which was very, very, uh, emphasized. And there was this sense of this non-self or the sense of cultivating a particular way of understanding the self that is impermanent. So there were some basic shared similarities, even as there were some of these cultural differences.
0: Hmm. And if we go a little bit further to the Southwest and take a look at Sri Lanka, for example, what is the Sri Lankan attitude to mindfulness, and how do they understand the concept?
1: So Sri Lanka is quite connected religiously to Myanmar and Thailand, especially historically. But it's not as tied to some of the lay movements for mindfulness in particular. But in Sri Lanka, there's also a history of lay uh, kinds of uh, revivals um, especially Anagarika uh, and Olcott and others in Sri Lanka kind of pushed for an ability for lay people to also be able to practice meditation and to also have access to some of these Buddhist teachings. So Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and Thailand, in addition to Laos and Cambodia, although I didn't have the time to really go and do research there, although I would, I would love to be able to, and also some of these other areas around it, but in Sri Lanka, it also has this Theravada history. And in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar and Thailand, people would point to Sri Lanka saying, like, that's where, you know, that's where people are really developing. That's where it was really developed. That's where, you know, they're really, really Buddhist there. And there's some particular differences in Sri Lanka right off the bat that I noticed. Um, first, that there's more of a sense, and this came across in the research um, in terms of how mindfulness is understood, more of a sense that monks, that religion, especially the Buddhist religion and and mindfulness is the purview of monks in Sri Lanka. And I think that's for two reasons. One is that there's multiple religion. There's more of a sense of multiplicity of religion in Sri Lanka. Of course, in in Myanmar and in Thailand, uh, there's uh, Muslim minorities and other kinds of religions and Christianity. But in Sri Lanka, there's more of a sense of multiplicity of religions within the same kinds of cities Um, And there's also uh, the tradition of at least idealized um, ordination for life. And so often uh, in Burma, in in Myanmar and, and Thailand, Um, monks are understood to ordain for, you know, I've known, I've known people to ordain male people to ordain for five days and then stop. So almost every, every, almost every male person I've ever met in Thailand and Burma in Myanmar have ordained as a monk. And so they get this kind of moral training, including that of mindfulness pretty regularly. In Sri Lanka, people are Or at least ideally ordained for life. And so the area of mindfulness is more to them. The other is it's something that they are understanding. Although when I first got to Sri Lanka, I met a Muslim woman, a young woman, who said, Oh yes, we have mindfulness in Islam also. So yeah, it's everywhere. So it wasn't just seen as this elite Buddhist concept. Uh, But it was definitely I noticed in the interviews that the monks were more textually elaborative of it and the lay people were a little bit less comparatively to Myanmar and Thailand, a little bit less um, um, kind of wanting to elaborate on it. Um, the other, the other difference is that, um, in 1996, there was a female monastic, um, revival movement. And so it was really nice for me as a woman to be able to talk to female monastics. Uh, and so the mindfulness, uh, mind ideas about mindfulness were also, um, uh, understood and by monastics who were also women, and so when I went there, I first went to um, the Buddhist International Sri Lanka International Buddhist Institute in Kandy, and I talked to a female monastic who was heading the institute there, uh, and she talked about mindfulness, um, and a lot of others did too about mindfulness in many of the same ways. Uh, as in Myanmar and Thailand, about recollection, about being aware, about being present, there was a slightly more um, explicit emphasis in Sri Lanka on mindfulness having to do with concentration and focus. People talked about how, you know, if you concentrate well, then you're able to develop mindfulness and mindfulness helps you to concentrate well. So that was one of the areas that seemed to be a little bit different to me. Another area that uh, seemed a little bit different in addition to the monastic kind of textual teachings and this idea of focus, some people said to me, well, you could practice mindfulness but you could practice it the wrong way. So you want to practice mindfulness the right way. And that was something that I heard every once in a while in Myanmar and Thailand, but not as much as in Sri Lanka, uh, where this mitcha sati, they say correct mindfulness. They would say, you know, let's say there's a cat that is stalking its prey. It might be really focused. It might be really mindful. But if it's not doing it for the right reason, it's not actually doing good then it's actually the wrong mindfulness. So that cat might be practicing mindfulness, but it's not the right kind of mindfulness. And what we want to do is to practice the right mindfulness. And that kind of ties in ideas about the ethics of mindfulness, also this sense of practicing good. But in general, in Sri Lanka, people would tell me a lot of stories about mindfulness in ways that looked similar to what I had been hearing in other areas. So I remember a monk told me about how before he had been a monk, he said, I I was um, working at a bank and I got trapped in the the bank vault by accident when they closed the door and went home for the night. And he said he got really scared and he said, I used my mindfulness to help me figure out a way to get out. He said mindfulness saved my life. And those were kind of similar kinds of stories. The head monastic at the International Buddhist uh, Study, the uh, Sri Lanka International Buddhist Institute. Um, She had said, You know, when my my brother got married, I wasn't invited to the wedding because he thought it might be strange to have a monastic there or maybe not kind of conducive to the probably, you know, kind of celebrations that they would have at the party. And she said, Well, I used my mindfulness to help me to feel better about that. So there were a lot of similar kinds of practices. There are also meditation retreats, uh, in similar ways where people are practicing mindfulness. I met with, uh, Gananath Obia Sekare there who, who like, um, Stanley Tambaya also had gone to the University of Paradigmia where I did the interviews with the students. And he said, oh, mindfulness is kind of one of those rich people, hip kinds of concepts where people escape from themselves on these retreats for a vacation or something. And he kind of said, well, it's not that big of a thing. And I said you know it seems like even if it's not something that is emphasized by monks all the time as especially the central teaching it still is it was told to me as this really important concept by both the monastics and lay people uh, when they talked to me about their practices so in Sri Lanka it didn't seem to have the same kind of colloquial use but the monastics talked about it a lot as being some one of the most important aspects of Buddhism when I went to the Candy uh, Hospital uh, and went to the psychiatric unit and interviewed people there, I thought it was especially fascinating to talk to some of the doctors and the, the psychiatric hospital staff there because they talked to me about how, um, because they were working with people of different kinds of religions, they said, well, I'm not really sure how we should be teaching mindfulness to people who aren't Buddhist. And it reminded me of some of these more international kinds of controversies or discussions that people are having about mindfulness. Is it a religious concept? Is it a psychological concept? Uh, How can we make sense of it? Um, I met these two residents who had been doing their residency in Colombo, in the capital, and they had learned about mindfulness as present moment awareness. And they had actually gone through a Jon Kabat-Zinn mindfulness-based training program And it was really interesting to talk to them because they said, you know, we're not really sure, should we be using these Buddhist concepts? Should we be using these kind of Westernized psychology concepts? And they said it was something that they're thinking about and talking about. And it just reminded me again of how these ideas are really, they're not in contrast to each other, but they're... They, they work off each other and they're in conversation with each other and they're not a perfect overlap of each other. And I thought that was really important. And I think in Sri Lanka, I, I especially recognized how relevant an understanding of mindfulness within its local context and how it ties into these ideas about power and who has the power to talk about mindfulness, how relevant that is to patients and also just to people who would benefit from the practice.
0: Now that we've surveyed the, the three big epicenters of the Theravada Buddhist world, I guess we can say if we if we take a few steps back and take in the big picture, what can we say is the difference between how Theravada Asia understands mindfulness and how America in the West understands mindfulness?
1: I wouldn't want to say that I have a sense of how everywhere in the world people are practicing mindfulness. In the book, I talked about I talk about you know Western ways of understanding mindfulness, and I base this discussion uh, in um, on a lot of literature review of psychological studies, Buddhist studies, and kind of popular culture. I also did 120 interviews and questionnaires in the area of Eastern Washington, uh, where Washington, where I work at Washington State University, because I wanted to have an empirical basis and not just make generalizations based on what other people are assuming about mindfulness. So I do feel like I have a sense of some of how People are thinking about mindfulness in Western contexts, but I also want to make sure that I don't um, claim to know all of the different ways that people are understanding mindfulness, especially in the United States or in these Western kinds of conversations, because mindfulness is quite new, I think, relatively new in these Western contexts, and there are lots of different kinds of understandings of them. But in general, I did, and especially in the last chapter, I did revisit the tapes, um, of mindfulness in Thailand, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka, what I call the Theravada, Asia, um ways of understanding mindfulness and how they might look similar to and different from mindfulness in these Western contexts. And I think there is, in general, a sense in 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 both of these contexts about time being important in a sense of being uh, attending to the present. So the sense of the presence did seem to come up. Um, in all of the areas that I did the research, I'm not by every single person I talked to, but by most people, they would say um, being aware of what's going on now is important. But compared to Southeast Asia, I think in the United States or in this area, um, the Pacific Northwest, people would focus on the present kind of exclusively and not pay as much attention to the concept of remembering the word "sati." ties to this uh, Sanskrit term, smirti, which ties to um, the idea of remembering. And I think that this idea of remembering, the trace of remembering in the concept of mindfulness in sati kind of has gotten lost as it has transitioned into Western contexts. And I think that when in Southeast Asia, people would bring back this idea of remembering. Some people would say it's just to be able to remember, but many people talked about it in terms of recollecting and being able to remember the present. In terms of affect, I found that people in comparatively in in the Pacific Northwest or in these Western contexts often used mindfulness to want to be happy. And I think happiness is a loaded, loaded word um, tying to certain American ideals. What does happiness look like? Is can you have a calm happiness, or is happiness always this robust kind of feeling of yeah, you know, kind of over? overwhelming joy. Um, some people in Southeast Asia, the few people who did make explicit comparisons would say, you know, here, we really focus on calmness. And and I remember one um, doctor in, in Thailand saying, you know, here, we don't look at happiness necessarily as much of a goal. And he said, that might be different than how it's understood in the United States. So I think comparatively, in terms of affect, there's more of a sense of happiness in, in the United States, at least as being something that people are doing when they are practicing mindfulness. But at the same time, I think that what that happiness looks like in mindfulness across the regions uh, does have a sense of calmness, um, the sense of non-attachment, don't get stuck on something uh, that will be passing. So I think there are some similarities in calmness and some slight differences in what an ideal kind of uh, mindful, affective self looks like. In terms of the tape of power, in terms of power, I think uh, across the board, there's definitely a sense of self-empowerment or that we can use mindfulness to cultivate a sense of um, power over ourselves or control to not get too upset about something and kind of lash out or act without thinking about it. Um, but compared to Southeast Asia, I think in the United States there isn't as much of a sense of the powers of mindfulness that have been developed to extend past the individual and to look at how mindfulness might be thought about in terms of social um, social powers or how we can think about social worlds together. I think there is a sense, even in um, Western contexts, that look at mindfulness in terms of corporate um, corporate uses of mindfulness and. Um, in terms of ways that people use it for marketing, there's the sense of, well, you use mindfulness to be more efficient at work. But there isn't as much comparatively a sense of actually using mindfulness for corporate purposes as there is in Southeast Asia. Uh, also, political, I think there isn't as much use of mindfulness. I was thinking about how in Southeast Asia, there was a flood in Bangkok, and I had, and, um, And I remember watching a TV program that said, are are you worried your house is flooding? And over the top of the screen where the words have mindfulness... And I thought how that might work in Southeast Asia. But if you did that over after, say, Hurricane Katrina or something, people would not it would not work. (laughs) It's not how people really necessarily want to be told how to how to think. And so there are these differences in how mindfulness is to put put into use, both in good ways and in manipulative, (laughs) manipulative ways to get certain kinds of goods sold or certain kind of government programs done. Uh, I think also definitely, um, compared to the United States and Southeast Asia, the sense of the powers of mindfulness extending past the self to the social and also to the supernatural, I think is something that is not really explored that much in a lot of the mindfulness studies in, in the United States in terms of ethics. In the United States, in my interviews and in surveying literature, there is definitely a sense that mindfulness is something that people should do or could could want to do, and it would it would help well-being, and those all have ethical kinds of components, this sense that it's a good thing to do. But compared to the United States, there is this focus on how mindfulness is understood, I found, in the United States that really says, you know, don't have judgment on what you're doing. Really just notice what's happening and don't have a judgment on it. Whereas in Southeast Asia, uh, comparatively, people would say you really everything, everything about mindfulness is about doing good. And they're not necessarily about judging what one is doing, but definitely if you're doing something, it should be good if you're practicing mindfulness. And this ethical component comparatively is much more elaborated in different ways in Southeast Asia in terms of the tape of self um there's in across the board in these different regions in in uh, the west and i think in southeast asia there's this sense of the self that's cultivated um as something that we want to practice getting better at so there's the sense of self worth or self well-being and i think even in the united states there's this sense that what that self looks like is one that's kind and good and nice and not so self-centered, you could say. But I think compared to Southeast Asia, I think there isn't as much a sense of what that ideal self looks like that's cultivated through mindfulness um, as is something that actually doesn't exist at all. Whereas I think in Southeast Asia people would say if I really understand mindfulness, I'll understand the teaching that I don't actually have a self or that that the sense of self is transient or it's impermanent or that it's multiple or that it can wander off and that my sense of self itself is not something that is a stable entity that that I would develop through mindfulness. So I think the ways that selfhood are implicated are different. So those are how mindfulness, I think, looks similar and different in Western contexts and in Southeast Asia. And I think there are three big implications of that. I think first, I've noticed in a lot of mindfulness studies um, there is, at least in the psychological literature, there is a sense that mindfulness uh, may have had these cultural baggages or these cloakings and this Buddhist kind of context in the past, or you know, back when in these cultural places. But how mindfulness is understood now is kind of a cultural. It doesn't really have. We got rid of all that extra baggage, and I think one of the things that my study shows is how a lot of the the ways that mindfulness is couched actually is couched in different cultural ways in western contexts and in southeast asia and not just that it's cultural in one place and a cultural in another by looking at these comparatively these kinds of ideas about time affect power, ethics, and selfhood comparatively, we can see how actually certain kinds of ideal ways of being in Western contexts are also implicated in mindfulness that have cultural connotations and histories about what we want to do when we try to use mindfulness to become a better me, for example. And I think that that's one of the mo- biggest implications, this psychological implication about the mind. Another implication is just showing how mind, the mind is different in different kinds of places. This idea of of diversity in mindfulness, that we want to look at how mindfulness might work in Southeast Asia in order to better understand our own, I guess, if we're talking about Western contexts. And I think that this is true um, for Europe also to some extent. And my colleague and friend Joe Cook is writing a book uh, coming up about mindfulness in in, in British kinds of uh, contexts also. And I think that there are some overlays, but I do think there are differences across different regions and Western areas also. Uh, but I think we might want to take some of these, potentially take some of these Buddhist ideas about non self or about uh, um, different ideal affective kinds of practices or about ethics. And potentially put them into mindfulness practices in Western contexts. So the first implication was a more of a psychological one. The second one is more of a Buddhist, Buddhist one, kind of how we might want to take mindfulness and not just see it as an isolated idea, but actually use um, some of these, uh use some of these teachings that are circulating in Southeast Asia and in, in, in use them in our own mindfulness practices to make them more fleshed out to potentially help ourselves a little bit more. The third implication, I think, is more one that has to do with um, how we might want to put these into practice, not necessarily wholeheartedly like, okay, well, this this idea, you know, of of non-self, do we really want to say, well, we don't want to have a self? Maybe we want to develop a certain kind of a self. And this this implication has to do with the therapeutic kind of implication. How do we want to think about mindfulness in different ways for different people with different goals and different ideals? Devin hinted and others are looking at how mindfulness could be put into practice to help Cambodian refugees in the United States, for example, who might benefit from looking at mindfulness in a particular way that's different from how somebody in a different kind of cultural setting might benefit from it. And so that Kind of ties into how therapies therapies that that put mindfulness into practice might want to think about diversity and not just you know we could say quote whitewash mindfulness and assume that a certain way of thinking about mindfulness is a universal kind of concept. And the last thing I wanted to say about that, and I think, is kind of one of my biggest take home messages, is that when we think about mindfulness in southeast asia we might be tempted to say well they do it their way there and we do it you know our way here and you know to each their own but i think the conversation i had with my friend sen about mindfulness and about how he said you know really if without mindfulness it's hard to be sane it's hard to really you know really to have a sense of well-being at all it really reminded me that that these ideas about what mindfulness look like circulate they travel around Globally, and they travel along power lines, and we want to be paying attention to that when we're thinking about what mindfulness might look like in terms of monks, in terms of important you know scholars, in terms of um, important psychiatrists or Buddhist studies um, uh, Buddhist studies uh, specialists, we might want to be paying attention to that also uh, to think about not just what they're saying as good or bad, but to understand the context that they're coming from and how they're aligning themselves so that we can better understand how mindfulness and ideas about the mind uh, might work in different ways for different people.
0: Well, thank you very much for this interesting discussion. I think it's uh, been very insightful to see how other cultures, uh, specifically Theravada Asia, conceive of this nebulous term mindfulness that we hear about so often today. Uh, Before we go, though, I'd like to ask you about what projects you're working on and if you have any plans for the future.
1: Yeah, so I'm basically wrapping up the mindfulness work right now. I've been giving talks about it and writing some articles about it. I just finished up an essay in a book on Buddhism, Meditation, and Science by David McMahon and Eric Braun. Uh, I wrote an article called Wherever You Go, Maybe There You Aren't, <laughs> instead of where you are, uh, kind of playing off John Kabat-Zinn's uh, classic work. Uh, I also uh, wrote up some of the implications of this in a book called Universalism Without Uniformity with Usha Menon. That's from the University of Chicago Press, thinking about it mentally. Um, and as I wrap up these kinds of past projects, I'm also starting a new project that's really in the beginning stages of development, but it will be looking at how different ways of attending uh, to the mind and to the body reflect different uh, processes of perception. I notice in meditation, especially Vipassana styles that are popular in the mindfulness movement, they suggest very particular ways of paying attention. And I'm really curious how that, what that means for how we might see things, like how we actually encounter our worlds, in terms of thinking about cultures of attention and this ethical self cultivation of thinking about how. How we're looking at the world, how that influences what we actually see. I'm really interested specifically in this idea of um, the frequency bias. It's called the sense of you know we pay attention to something and then suddenly it seems to be everywhere. I noticed when I was studying impermanence, impermanence was everywhere, and then when I studied mindfulness, mindfulness was everywhere. And I want to know like how how is it that when we start to notice something, how does it suddenly seem to be everywhere around us? And is this this, does this actually shift culturally uh, in, in ways that we're attending to the world around us? And this ties into uh, the, the, uh, Amos uh, Tversky and Kahneman's work on cognitive biases and heuristics and how we're using these ideas. Uh, we use certain kinds of shorthands uh, to interpret what we see, but how these shorthands or these heuristics are kind of uh, shortcuts to perceive our worlds might be different in different kinds of cultural contexts. So this fall, uh, I just am finishing up a fellowship at Cambridge and I'll be at Cornell this fall. But uh, after uh, in November, I'll be in Chiang Mai uh, with Tanya Lerman, my postdoc advisor from Stanford will be interviewing patients with schizophrenia at the Chiang Mai psychiatric hospital looking at how people there are, are, are understanding ideas about perception and causation. And I'll be interviewing people in, in Thailand also to think about ideas about notation, uh, attention, and perception. And so it's really in the beginning stages right now, but I'm really interested in this these Buddhist teachings about attention and perception and how that might offer an alternative or a different kind of way for understanding the mind And even our own realities that might look different from how we understand it in these westernized psychological kinds of settings.
0: Well, again, thank you very much for coming on the the podcast today to discuss in such an interesting and and thorough way your book, Remembering the Present Mindfulness in Buddhist Asia, published by Cornell University Press. And uh, I'd like to wish you a very nice day, and I hope we will stay in contact to discuss your future
1: research. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Forkuva.